Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Well, again, it is a pleasure seeing you all here today. And Mel and choir and worship team, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, what a great song. What an incredible song. So before we get started, I've got two, well, three announcements I want to share. Uh, Joseph and Haley Rahm and their children. Joseph is back there with two of his kids. They have been missionaries in Honduras for almost nine years. And they just moved back uh, last week here to the States. So they are here. So please greet them. Uh, after the worship service and bienvenidos. So glad you guys are here. And uh, Haley might be down in the nursery with the itty-bitty one. So anyway, so they're here. Also, too, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Mel Tunney, her last Sunday leading worship for us will be December 22nd. And we will celebrate that in a few weeks. But today is Dick Tunney's last Sunday to play. He and Steve Green travel a lot. And so today is his last Sunday to worship with us, and I just want to thank you so very much. I know you don't like all the fanfare, but thank you. Yeah, I know you know this, but you're an incredible pianist, and you're humble, and just your love for Jesus and your servant heart, and just your deep desire to bring great glory to him. So just, it has been an incredible joy and privilege to have you. In honor of your Buckeyes, my son Eric is wearing his dad's uh, sweater today, so thank you so much. And then finally, I do want to say, I shared a funny last week when a, a false email went out to many of you asking to buy gift cards to give to me, and you, your expression of just concern about me, my email account and everything, I mean, I truly know that you all love me, but that just expression of just deep concern, and I know I'm kind of being funny, but I'm for real. Uh, you guys truly showed how much you care about me just as your pastor, so thank you. But when I shared at the end of the service about my dear friend Farid, who was kidnapped right before the service, um, he is free. He was rescued, and um, he was kidnapped by the cartel. It wasn't because he was the pastor. It's because he comes from a very influential family. His in-laws are very influential, and he was kidnapped 15 minutes before the service started. It was a setup. I know a whole lot of the details that I won't share with you. Uh, after 24 hours, the cartels usually get in contact with the family, and almost 36 hours had passed, and there still was no word. And I know of people who've been killed, who've disappeared, and there is no word. So by Monday night, most people in the family were unbelievably uh, nervous and deeply concerned and unbelievably grieved. At 6.30 Tuesday morning, I got a text message with this picture on it, and Monica, Farid's wife, say, guess who's at home? And so this is Farid eating breakfast at about 6.30 in the morning. He is still wearing his priest shirt. He's an Anglican priest, and uh, he was kidnapped, and he's got an amazing story. So I want to thank you all for all your prayers, all your concern. If you're wondering about his name, he's Mexican, but he's one-fourth Syrian. His, father, grand, his grandfather migrated over to Mexico during World War II. So please be praying. He and his family have been advised to leave the country, and so they will be leaving the country for a certain time, and then pray for the Church of Mexico, because they feel like five years ago, Doug left, and now Farid's leaving, and where do we start? And so there is a war for souls. Uh, Mexico, especially where we live, is extremely dark spiritually, needs unbelievable revival. So please pray for Farid and Monica, their four kids, who will be moving out of the country for a while, and then for Great Shepherd, the church, as they have to pick up the pieces as far as, like, what to do and who leads and who shepherds and who pastors. So it is hardcore stuff. But I want to say thank you 
for all your unbelievable prayers. Um, I have pondered a lot, you know, because it could have easily gone the other way south. And um, many people, many of you, most of the people in Mexico have declared when Fadit was set free, God is so good. And he's always good, even if Fadit were not to return. And that's very hard for me to grasp because so much of the time in our time in Mexico, we didn't have this good ending at all. And how do we deal with the fact if we can pray and just beat the doors of heaven down and we don't get the response we want? But at the same time, I wonder how would God respond if we prayed every day as desperate as we prayed for Fadid's release? What if our lifestyle of prayer was that way all the time? I know mine isn't. And I don't lay that as a heavy. But are we truly desperate for God? Are we like a parched, dry land who is thirsty for God and his presence for his glory? That is the sermon. We are dismissed. So <laughs> that's a good one. Isn't it? No. But I do want to say thank you. And with that, let's stand. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to go back to a passage. We looked at Revelation 5 back in August. And we're going to look at the chapter beforehand. As been said earlier, we are in the first Sunday of Advent, the, the hope candle, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at one of the central reasons why we have hope, why our God is a living God. Revelation chapter 4, 1 through 11, it will be on the screen. If you want to look it up in your own Bible, your own iPhone or smartphone that's got scripture on it, or there'll be Bibles in the pew. This is God's word, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders, dressed in white clothes, with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of the thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered, covered with eyes in front and in back, were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, O oh Lord our God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you've created all things and by your will they exist. And we're created. Let's pray. 
Father, we join our hearts with the angels and the archangels to praise your name because you are the living one. You were, you are, you will be. Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are eternal. You are creator. And Father, I pray that you would open our eyes of our hearts and our minds to truly see you in your glory. Lord Jesus, your word says no man, no person, no human can see you, can approach you. And yet by the grace of the Lord Jesus, you invite us into your presence to behold your glory and to worship you. We thank you that you are a good father and you have adopted us as your sons and daughters. And we are here to bring glory to you. May my words be your words, nothing else. Father, give us a greater glimpse of what it means to worship and to worship you. Fill us with hope. Touch us, encourage us, convict us, transform us. Burn away, wipe away the pride and the arrogance and the self-centeredness so that our eyes, the eyes of our heart and our mind, our soul, our spirit, we be fixed upon you, that we would love you with everything that we are, everything that we have. Prepare us for Christmas. Prepare us for your second coming, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Before we hit this passage, I have a question. I actually have a couple questions. If you're a moviegoer, what is your favorite movie? You don't have to respond. Just think about what's the most best all-time movie you've ever seen. Or if you love music, concerts, musicals, theater, what's the greatest concert or movie you've ever seen and why? If you're a nature buff and you love and you can connect and experience God in nature, what experience in nature have you been part of that overwhelms you where you truly do not have words to express what you see, hear, smell? My favorite best movie is Return of the King of Lord of the Rings, the third one. And since it came out in like 2004, it has ruined every other movie since. When I watch it, I truly have spiritual encounters with the Lord Jesus. One of the greatest experiences I ever had, though, in my life was in 1993 and the summer of 1994. Two summers, I was in Europe traveling on a mission trip. And in the middle of the summer, we would have a retreat for four days in Interlaken, Switzerland. And the two summers we went, we climbed up, and I can't even pronounce it, Mount Rote flu, it's near the, near the oh, I can't remember the kind, it's about 7,500 feet up, and it's off the lake of Interlaken, straight up. The first summer we went, it was about 80 degrees down at the bottom. By the time we got up, it was snowing and sleeting. There was about two feet of snow, and we were in shorts and T-shirts. It was cloudy, we couldn't see a thing, and so we decided it was best that we get down. The second time we went up, the second year, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And I remember getting to the top of this ridge and looking over, and there was this glacier lake. And it was the bluest thing I've ever seen. You could see mountain peak after mountain peak after mountain peak. And there were about 10 of us up there. And we just sat on the edge, just looking out for about an hour. And we were so overwhelmed by the fact that there was snow around us, the sun was shining, there were flowers around us, there was a green, a green meadow that just went on forever. You could see these glacial peaks of the Alps all around us, and it was about 70 degrees. 
And I can still picture a couple of the guys even climbed up higher on the next peak over, and they were shouting at us. And I was scared as a cat. I was the leader, and I was like, if someone falls off and dies, I'm in trouble, and I'm only 21. I'm going to be in big trouble with these college kids. And they sat up there, and they said, it's beautiful. Here's even better. And as we marched down and hiked down the mountain, about three hours back down, by the time we got done, our hips were so sore, our knees were so sore, but we couldn't get over the awe and beauty that we saw. And Scripture is very clear that we see God, we see his invisible attributes, his qualities, and who he is through his creation. And if I close my eyes, I can still see myself standing on the edge of that mountain, looking out, and all the different vivid pictures, even some of the conversation that some of the guys were saying, amazing. But even as I share this story with you, I feel like I don't have the words to express to you what we saw and what we experienced. Have you experienced something similar? And here we have in the book of Revelation, we have John, the Apostle John. And if you know anything about Scripture, John was one of the apostles. He was Jesus' best friend when Jesus was on the earth. He was the closest to Jesus, and most theologians believe he was the youngest of all the apostles. And by the time he writes this book, by the time he gets this revelation of Jesus, he's an old man, most likely in his 90s. He's been exiled because of his faith to the island of Patmos. And while there, Jesus appears to him, and Jesus gives him unbelievable amounts of visions and dreams about the future, about the end times, about the church. And there's tons of argument, theological discussion about how the end times will be. There's six or seven major theological teachings and the beliefs about how the end times will come. And with this book, the book of Revelation, it's prophetic, it's poetic, and it's very easy to want to take things literally. But we have to see the imagery and we also have to see, and we're going to see it today, that John was so overwhelmed emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically when he got to see the throne room. How do you describe God? How do you describe who he is? If God were to download to you who he is and what he looks like, how would you describe it? What would you say? How do you describe a powerful encounter out in nature like the one I did in the Alps or a movie or a musical concert, how do you describe something that's so amazing and so good and so fabulous? How do you describe it to friends? And I sit there and think when, when John saw God sitting on his throne, surrounded by angels, how do you describe that? Well, this is how he did here in chapter 4. John says this, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. Okay, what's John saying? He's saying, after this. What's he saying? After what? After chapters 1, 2, and 3, where he had this encounter of Jesus, and he saw the risen Jesus, and he bowed, and he shook like a dead man. He didn't even know what to think. And Jesus, and there's numerous verses in chapters 1 through 3, some we know very well when Jesus says, I wish that you were either hot or cold and not lukewarm. But since you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That comes in Revelation chapter 3. There's another verse we know well where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. That comes from Revelation chapter 3. So John has this amazing encounter with Jesus. And then he says, after this, 
I heard a voice. I saw this open door. What do you do if you're in a building or a house and you see an open door? You walk in it. You close it. Okay. Did you say that, Ashley? Okay. We went to Jefferson's house up in Washington, Virginia. There were numerous open doors. Nope, can't go in there. Don't touch that. Don't know. And I mean, with all these open doors, I was like, one to peek. Okay, what's in there? Usually, for me at least, if I see an open door and if I'm in a room or a building, I'm going to go and I'm going to look in. John sees this open door and he hears the voice of who he heard in chapter 1. That's Jesus' voice. How does he describe that voice? Like a trumpet. Loud. Come up here. How does John respond? He goes up. And it says immediately he's in the Spirit. Now being in the Spirit is just this unbelievable spiritual ability and sense and presence of who God is and to hear his voice. It's being aware. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we must be filled continually. He says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled. So in the same way that a drunk is allowing the alcohol to control his walk and his speech and his emotions, we should allow the Spirit to overwhelm our speech, our emotions, our thoughts, and to be led by Him. You see, when we walk in obedience... When Jesus calls us to obey and he says, follow me, come to me, and he speaks to us as we step out in obedience, he fills us fresh and anew with his spirit. We become even more attuned to his spirit and his voice and who he is. That is what John was doing. And what does it say here? What does he see? He sees a throne and he sees someone seated on it. He sees God himself. Now the crazy thing in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 17. And Christy, you mind putting those verses up? In 1 Timothy chapter 17, what does it say? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, what does Paul say here? And it'll be on the screen. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, who alone is what? Immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can hear. Let's stop right there. Is there a contradiction? Or is that just the biblical tension? Where we see in 1 Timothy, no one has seen God. And yet here in Revelation, who does John see? And I bring this up because we will see what we might think are contradictions in Scripture. Yet by God's great mercy, Jesus' mercy, he invited John into the throne room and gave him a glimpse of what we all will see one day, not because we are righteous or holy, but because of his great mercy, his great holiness. As John continues, 
How does John describe what he saw? The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and the carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. I was looking up on YouTube, what does jasper look like? What does an emerald stone look like? What does a sardis or carnelian stone look like? And I don't know if these pictures will do justice, but look it up here. Sardis stone. The next one. And there's numerous colors. But as John is seated there, as he's looking at the one shining brighter than the sun, he's trying to describe what he sees. He says there's a rainbow, and it's like a Cornelius stone. What does the rainbow, when you think of the rainbow in Scripture, what comes to mind? Noah, the promise of mercy. Never again will God judge the world the way he did with Noah. Mercy, salvation. And these stones of the holiness of God, his righteousness, his judgment, his fire. And John is seeing the brilliance of who the Father is seated on the throne, and he doesn't have words to describe it. As John continues, look at what he says. He says, around the throne, on verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. There's lots of debate. Who are these 24 elders? Who are they? What are they? Some people truly believe that they are appointed leaders. Seated seated on the throne, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Others believe that these 24 represent all the saints, everyone who is sons and daughters of the king who've been adopted, and we have access, and we're in his presence. They're dressed in white. If you've been to some churches, when people get baptized, they'll wear a white robe. It signifies purity and holiness and forgiveness and new life that is found in Christ. Crowns, authority, leadership. Many people think it's the joy and victory that we have in Jesus. But here we have the one, God himself, seated on the throne, surrounded by 24 elders, dressed in white with crowns on their head. And then John continues to describe, and here if we go into verse 5, he says, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. I don't know if you've ever been in a lightning storm. Has anybody been in a lightning storm where you actually were afraid? And when the lightning hits, when the thunder rolls, the houses actually shake. Christy and I were on furlough back in 2003 when the tornadoes went through Jackson, Tennessee and destroyed downtown. That was one of the scariest times I've ever been in. The little house we were staying in, it was a missionary house at my home church. One whole wall was pure glass. Not one panel was broken, but the hailstones were the size of baseballs and golf balls. Everything was destroyed. And the power that we saw after that storm, but the thunder and the lightning were unreal. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, as John describes that flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder are coming out from the throne. How powerful is God? As humans, many times we think that we truly are powerful and that we can control our own destiny. But if you've ever been on an airplane when it goes through unbelievable turbulence, you will know that you're powerless. And you will see if you've ever flown 
or have ever been in a car wreck or something traumatic, you realize very quickly, oh my gosh, I don't have power. And yet John is seeing this unbelievable amount of power coming from the throne room. And then he describes there's seven torches burning before the throne. And these are the seven spirits of God. Again, the poetic prophecy of what John is saying. The number seven, biblically, is that of perfection and completeness. It's describing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is perfect in all of his ways. He's manifold. He's omnipotent. We worship one God manifested himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. I can't describe it to you. And when we get to heaven, we will then begin to understand. But John sees the one seated on the throne with the 24 elders, and he goes on to describe there's four living creatures. Isaiah calls them seraphim because Isaiah saw the same thing. Ezekiel saw this same thing, and they describe it the same way yet different. And they have six wings, these four living creatures. They're the highest ranking angels ever created that we know about that have been revealed to us through Scripture. And they have eyes all around, which means wisdom, and they're always watchful. And Isaiah describes that two of the wings, they cover their bodies, their feet. Two of the wings, they cover their faces. And with two wings, they they fly. And what do they shout out? As it says here in verse 8, it says, each of the four living creatures covered, had six wings covered with their eyes inside and around, day and night. How long? Day and night, 24-7. They never stop calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it makes me wonder, here, they, here we have these angels, these, some of the most powerful angels ever created, and they have to cover their eyes. God is so holy and so awesome and so amazing that they have to cover themselves completely as they shout out, as they sing, as they call out, God is holy, he's holy, he's holy. And it makes me think, if these angels who are sinless have to cover themselves out of reverential fear and awe and trembling and wonder, and love, and they, had, they call out to one another, holy, 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 then how holy is God? He is our friend. He's our redeemer. He is our father. Jesus is our brother. And yet so, many, so much of the time, I just flippantly come into his presence forgetting that he is, he lives in unapproachable light. He is the king, immortal, invisible. He is completely other than we are. And he's worthy of all praise and glory and honor. I've asked myself, what was John feeling when he saw all of this? What was he experiencing? What was going through his mind as he saw our king seated on the throne? In verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the one saying, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Because you've created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. 
You see, I think it's called antiphon of worship. You have the four living creatures worshiping and singing. And as they worship and sing, the 24 elders, they fall and fall prostrate before the king. And as one sings, the other responds. And as one sings, the other responds. And they go back and forth in unbelievable worship and praise, singing to him because he's worthy. We read a passage last week, and we won't look at it this week, but it's from Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3. And Habakkuk is living during this very horrible, dreadful time. And he declares and he says, even if the fig tree doesn't produce, if there's no harvest, if there's no cattle or sheep in the pen, yet I will still worship and praise you. And that challenges me greatly because I know many times I want to worship God for the things and benefits I get for what he does for me. And sometimes the songs I hear, the worship songs I hear, especially on pop radio, the new worship songs, so many of the songs are all about us and how we feel and who we are. And I'm left standing, and God, where are the songs that just focus on him? Where are the songs that lift him up and declare who he is and what he has done instead of who we are and how we feel? There is a time and place for that. Because as we read the Psalms, which is the prayer book of the early church, there are Psalms of lament, of intercession, of supplication, of thanksgiving, and of worship. But because we live in such a self-centered culture, that is a microwave culture. And what I mean by microwave culture is we want immediate results yesterday to happen today, right here and right now when we want it. And I look at at John being exiled on the island of Patmos with no cell phone, no iPod, no computer, no scriptures in his hand. And yet he walked and lived in the spirit, even though he was persecuted for his faith. He lived in the spirit and he got to see Jesus for who he was. He got to see our king seated on the throne and he saw this amazing chorus of angels. And as we read the book of Revelation through chapter 5 through 21, 22, John saw over and over multitudes of people from every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the throne, worshiping him who what? Who lives forever and ever and ever. Here in Advent, today's the first Sunday of Advent. I found myself yesterday driving back from my mom's, getting all worked up about the schedule just for this week. Margie's basketball practice starts. We got life group. I got this meeting. I got that meeting. Oh, we got to go by the Christmas tree. There's this party we got to plan. Oh, we got to get together with this person or that person. And I could find myself just turn, turning. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I still ask the question, why do we decide to have 80% of all of our parties and give 80% of all our gifts and all of our cards in one month's time throughout the year? But we do. And so much of the time, we're motivated for the fact that we know so-and-so is going to give us something, so we better give them something, too. And we better have a party with this group, because if we don't, then they're not going to think we're that cool and awesome. So then we, and we work ourselves to death. And we get so just revved up, oh, my gosh, just Christmas, Christmas, New Year's. Blah, 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 blah. And during this time of Advent, we need to take a step back, cancel all of our Christmas plans, except for Christmas around the world. And we truly need to remember and worship and live in such a way, reminding ourselves and one another that God is on his throne. He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory 
and power. He is the only one that will live and has lived forever. And we're going to live with him forever from now on, but we're finite. We have a beginning. He doesn't. He always has been, and he always will be. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who gives us breath and life. One of the greatest gifts my dear brothers and sisters in Mexico gave, and I rarely hear it here in the United States, is when we would do Thanksgivings in our small group there. And our life group this morning did it in our Spanish class. One of the main things that they were always thankful for was life. Life. And more so than ever, this past week, many of you all experienced it with Farid, one of my dearest friends that I've ever had. His life was almost snuffed out last week. And we need to remember that we worship the one who always lives. He is life. He is the light of men. That light is his son, Jesus Christ. And he rules and he reigns forever. What does this mean for us? Worship. What is true worship? What does worship mean? We're called to worship God. Worship means to prostrate oneself, to bow down, to pay homage and to show reverence and to adore. It's to declare God's unparalleled worthiness, greatness, and holiness. The word worship, and I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, is proskuneo. Pros means toward. Cuneo means to kiss. And so worship means to approach with a kiss. That might seem awfully strange, but it's intimacy that we have with our Heavenly Father, our created King. We worship Him for His greatness. And there's just thoughts up here. God's eternal supremacy as creator and sustainer of all things is the central, all-consuming focus of worship. It's not us. It's Him. To encounter and retell the matchless character of the one and only true God, holy enthroned King of kings and Lord of lords. So when we worship Him, we need to remind ourselves we're stepping into an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. And we should lay prostrate before Him and declare who He is and what He's done because He is worthy. Things we can learn from this passage here. Because I'll admit, reading this passage several times, I'm like, man, how do I apply this to our lives? Here's a couple things. Food for thought. Immediate obedience to the voice of the Lord. Jesus called John up into that door, that open door. Come up here and I'll show you. Are we responding with immediate obedience to what God calls us to in our daily lives? Walking and living in the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled, continually filled every day. Are you being, are you allowing Holy Spirit to fill you every day? Number three, Jesus longs to reveal his heart to his people. He loves and longs to reveal his word to you as his dearly beloved child. God's incredible, amazing, glorious presence 
and worthiness. God, sorry, that's a, ooh, I wrote that wrong. God is incredibly amazing in his glorious presence, and he's worthy of all worship and praise. We need to surrender everything that is precious to him because he is worthy. Those 24 elders laid their crowns at his feet. Everything that we have, everything that we are, we need to lay at his feet and worship. A couple things to close, just to challenge all of us with. Number one, what is distracting you from worshiping God? Number two, are we walking in immediate obedience to him, to the Lord? I shared some of these things last week, and I'll repeat them again this week. All of us need to repent of our low esteem and view of the greatness of Jesus. Four, let's ask God to give us greater understanding and adoration of his greatness, to truly see him for who he is. And there's two practical things. I want to encourage all of us during this Advent season to spend five minutes a day in worship and praise of who Jesus is. That's not much. And to spend five more minutes a day just meditating on his greatness. If you want to spend five hours a day, go right ahead. Awesome. Give him baby bites. But let's spend in this Advent season dedicated time every day just worshiping him. We're going to close. We did this last week, 120 seconds of silence. We're just going to ask Holy Spirit to speak to us now. So let's pray. How is God speaking to you this morning?